0: Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast, and we're recording this episode on Thursday, the 11th of August. This week, we're going to have a quick chat about how the Sweden Democrats' reckoning with their own history went off the rails a bit. We'll look at a moderate party proposal for the state to help people pay their spiralling energy bills. We'll discuss opposition to language tests for citizenship from a government agency And finally, we'll turn the spotlight on the election pledges that will most affect foreigners and we'll focus mostly on things like work permits, residency permits and citizenship. I'm Paul O'Mani, and with me this week in Stockholm, I have the locals James Savage and in Malmö, we have Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hello.
2: And uh, we have a dog with us in the studio. Yeah, you can hear her now. We have a dog with us in the studio in Malmo. So if you hear any little uh, whining noises throughout the podcast, it's not me and Richard.
0: <laughs> Whose dog is it? It's Richard's dog. Oh. Becky, you've had a hectic week, I know, on the housing market. What can you tell us?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know all the advice about not buying a property when there's like property market crash and all of this interest rate stuff. Yeah. I would recommend not doing that because I've been it's been very stressful. We've been oh, no. um Applying for mortgages at the moment, we've been going through all the looking at the the information of the BRF and making sure they're not in any kind of financial difficulties. I mean, we've got a mortgage now, luckily, so everything's fine. But weirdly, we applied to Danske Bank, who rejected our mortgage application because I don't have a permanent residence permit which doesn't say anywhere on that web- on their website that that's a requirement, they'd given us a loan promise. Yeah. So uh, luckily I'd applied to a couple of different banks and we got two loan promises from other banks anyway. But yeah, it was odd. And then I kind of tweeted out about it and there was a lot of people saying they'd had the same issue. They didn't specifically say Danske Bank, but a lot of people were saying that they'd also had issues with permanent residence permits and that they'd ended up being able to get a mortgage via SBRB, I think was one of them. And someone said SEB gave them a,
0: mm.
2: a mortgage. So yeah, it... It's definitely something to keep in mind if you're planning on buying a property. It's definitely yeah. apply to multiple banks just in case for some reason you need to have a permanent residency permit. or There can also be rules about... <clears throat> so our BRF, we bought the apartment in. It was rental apartments, and then it became a BRF, so like a cooperative housing right. association, at the end of August last year. And obviously some banks have a rule about not loaning out a mortgage for... A BRF which is less than a year old because they don't know how the financials are mm. so that's another thing like one bank rejected us because of that one bank rejected us because of permanent residency permits another bank rejected us because I didn't have I can't remember what it was but there was some kind of document that they didn't think was good enough like there's loads of different reasons why they reject you and it's kind of throwing all of your eggs into lots of different baskets and hoping that... That's a bit of a weird metaphor, maybe. But.
0: <laughs> well, still glad, glad to hear that it's getting sorted. How about James and Richard? Have you had any troubles uh, buying properties? Never,
1: never. But I came here as a, an EU citizen. So the need for a permanent residency... I wasn't there? I wasn't a permanent resident, but I was an EU citizen living in Sweden. So, I so I, th- I think that probably made a big difference. Whereas Becky is now a non-EU citizen and not a permanent resident, and that is you know and and that and that's quite different.
3: Hmm. How about you, Richard? I've not never had much difficulty. I mean, I, I bought, I've only bought one property, and that was in ten years ago, and it went pretty smoothly. And and but again, like James, I was an EU citizen at the time and married to a Swede. And also, I mean, I imagine that they apply the rules a bit more rigorously at the moment because they're worried about what's going to happen in the next few years. I imagine they're sitting there going, well, do we want to be giving out loads of mortgages now when people there might be some sort of crash?
0: Okay, well, best of luck with the rest of the process, Becky. And before we move on, I should mention that we have a new... Twitter account where you can follow everything that's happening with the podcast and you can find us there under the name Sweden in Focus. The first news story we're going to talk about this week concerns the Sweden Democrats. They are a party with roots in the extreme right Bervara Sveriges Svenst or Keep Sweden Swedish movement and they've often been accused of not doing enough to acknowledge their historical ties to neo-Nazis and fascists but they did finally publish the first part of a report last month that set out to grapple with these thorny issues. What was in the report James and why is it back in the news well the
1: whole purpose of this report like you say was to try and get all the skeletons out of the cupboard effectively yeah. the, um, the as you say the Sweden Democrats they they have their their roots in this bivaous various fence movement which was a sort of neo-nazi movement they also were founded you know some of their founding members were on very much the wrong side of history in the Second World War, you know, including people who served as volunteers in the Waffen-FS. I mean, we're talking kind of <laughs> quite proper serious, Nazis. But proper Nazis. But this issue has haunted the Sweden Democrats for many, many years in a way that it hasn't done with similar populist parties, parties that on the face of it are very similar to the Sweden Democrats in, say, Denmark mm. and Norway. Very similar policies to them. Um, you know, Fremsketspartiet in Norway, for example. Very similar yeah. policies, but not laden down by all of, by this historical baggage. And so the idea bet- that Yumi Okerson, the party leader, had um, in 2018 was to say, look, we're going to try and find someone to write a report, to put all the cards on the table. It was quite hard to find someone. And eventually they found a historian, um, an academic historian called uh, Tony Gustafsson, mm-hmm. who had um, researched at Uppsala University, and he wrote a report. And this report was was fairly transparent I would say you know it was um it talks about how the party had been founded by fascists, skinheads and other people with nasty backgrounds I mean you know, that's uh, pretty true uh, uh, incontrovertible but you know this was this was a Sweden Democrats putting out there and they figured that this was you know nice and transparent but they were also able to use it and the party secretary Martin Kunen used it to say that it, the, the reports also showed that the party was not itself part of the fascist extreme right, right. That it was kind of a breakaway mm-hmm. from from that from that background so they, they they try to spin it in, in in that way, and they wanted this to be a sort of a really credible report that put that sort of put these questions to bed a bit. Um, unfortunately, it turned out um, this week that Tony Gustafsson himself had been a member of the Sweden Democrats. He joined Sweden Democrats in 2017 as a party member, which obviously opponents of the Sweden Democrats then can use against the Sweden Democrats. To say, well, this report itself was not credible, that, you know, you, you, you say you're putting cards on the table, you wanted an independent historian, the historian you got was not independent. So this is a problem for the Sweden Democrats in the sense that, you know, if this, if this report was going to be useful, it needed to be credible. And, and now perhaps it's lost a little bit of its credibility. What the party is saying, though, is that, look, we're not, we don't look into people's backgrounds, GDPR and all that, you know, we can't tell whether he was once a member of the party. And Martin kinnan reiterated that the report was independent. Ultimately, it probably doesn't matter that much for the Sweden Democrats and their opinion ratings and, and what no, people vote. But its
0: legitimacy has really been questioned now in the But the, the, the report's media.
1: legitimacy itself has um, certainly been questioned.
2: It's been taken down from their website now, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. So I yeah, think that's kind of them trying to just, OK, let's just get rid of this. Let's just not talk about this anymore.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's obviously it's obviously um, not going to be something they're going to be talking about very much in the future. So when these issues come up, they're not going to be able in the same way to wave this report around and say, well, look, we've gone to the bottom of all of these questions about us and we've taken our skeletons out of the closet.
0: But does it really mean that the skeletons are still in the closet because now people are just going to be able to say you didn't do a proper report, you had this guy who was a Sweden Democrat write the report, it's not legitimate?
1: I wonder. I mean, the skeletons were never, in a sense, really in the closet because all of this information has been publicly available anyway. So it makes it a bit harder for the Sweden Democrats to say that they have sort of done any sort of truth and reconciliation, for want of a better term. This makes that harder. But fundamentally, the origins of the Sweden Democrats are well documented by independent historians other than Tony Gustafsson. And I think people who want to use SD's background against them will continue to do so. And it'll be hard for Sweden Democrats to say anything about it, apart from, look, it's ancient history.
0: OK, just a reminder that if you're a paying member of The Local, we have a weekly newsletter called Sweden Elects that's produced by editor Emma Lovgren, and focuses on the upcoming election. And you can sign up now at thelocal s e forward slash newsletters. And obviously now is a very good time to do so with uh, just a few weeks left until the election. Now, there's a lot of concern in Sweden and elsewhere at the moment about rising energy costs. And with the election coming up, parties are eager to let consumers know how they plan to cushion the blow. With experts warning that electricity prices in southern Sweden will double this winter, the moderate party has said that the state should help households shoulder the burden. Can you tell us about this proposal, Becky, and how other parties have reacted to it?
2: Yeah, so anyone who's been to the dentist in Sweden, uh, I know this might sound like a little bit of a weird kind of tangent, will understand this concept of hergkostnadswud, just like high price protection. It basically means that you pay up to a certain amount and then on the top of that amount, the state pays. So the moderates want to introduce this, but for electricity. Their proposal was that everything over 1 krona per kilowatt hour the state could maybe pay 75% on that um and i think i was looking at tt which one of the swedish news wires they said that that would kind of that would mean that for a family in norland which has cheaper electricity than uh, than here in Skorna, that would be about 6000 krona saving um, so mm. it's it's quite a bit of money. And I mean, if that's just in Norland, it would be quite a lot more in the in Skåne.
0: Yeah. So I've, I've seen um, figures being thrown around, like homeowners in southern Sweden, in an extreme scenario, their bills could go up from like 20,000 to, to 70,000. So that would mean that like the state would cover maybe like 75% of the 50,000 discrepancy.
2: And they're saying that like this is because the government hasn't been controlling the electricity market and all of this stuff. That's kind of the reasoning behind it. But the interesting thing is that Magdalene Andersson kind of came out and said a statement saying we're open to discussing this so I don't know it, obviously it would look great for the government if they can kind of tackle these electricity prices with the with every, that's what everyone's worrying about a lot of people don't hit also going back to me buying out an apartment I was looking very closely at the energy rating can I afford if the electricity rating goes up so much like it is a big issue a lot of the different parties had mentioned energy prices specifically and energy production energy supply as being a big issue um, so it'd be interesting to see what happens and see if this actually ends up uh, coming to fruition.
0: So I wonder if, if Magdalene Anderson has kind of neutralised what could on the face of it have been a, a vote winner for the for the moderates.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that's why she came out so quickly to say, oh, yeah, no, we're open to doing this. But then she also said, like, as a caveat, we can't just pay for everything, single thing that gets more expensive because of the war in Ukraine. So it was a little bit like, we might do this, but don't expect us to be giving you loads of handouts just because things are getting more expensive.
3: And then on the sidelines, uh, M- Mikael Damberg, the finance minister, was yesterday out and interviewed about the uh, latest prognosis from the Sweden's government economic forecaster. The message from this is it's really important that we don't just start throwing money around left, right and centre at just at anything, you know, uh, and that we hold discipline in the rest of the election campaign, which I think was a sort of tacit message to the moderates on this as so sort of a way of saying you know because this is i mean like you say it's it, it's paying a three quarters of two thirds of everyone's electricity bill for the entire winter it's going to be a colossal yeah, cost exactly. I mean it's extraordinary in a way it's a quite an irresponsible, fiscally irresponsible and that wasn't, piece of politics. that
2: wasn't even the only thing they proposed, they also proposed um, so there's currently a discount if you want to buy solar panels or like more energy efficient heating sources for your home. So they were talking about extending that so it's even cheaper to make your home more energy efficient. So they're not just proposing throwing money at energy bills; they're also proposing throwing money at energy efficiency, which in itself is a good policy. But where, how are you going to finance it?
1: On the other hand, though, if everybody's hitting the ceiling, which basically everybody presumably will be, because um, because of the, the extent to which they're subsidising it, it reduces the it reduces the incentive for people to economise on. Um, to, to, to increase energy efficiency at home, so there are, you know, there are significant problems with this. Ultimately, the problem is there is an energy shortage. Fuel prices are high. There's there's not enough. There's not enough energy in the European grid as a whole. It's not just the Swedish grid; it's the European grid. And what needs to happen in, in order for that to, um, in, in order for that to be resolved, is first of all for there to be more power produced, preferably. That's hard to organise quickly. Secondly, for there to be less energy used and for people to use energy more thoughtfully and more efficiently. And you know what the, what the government is doing here will make that harder and therefore some critics say in fact many critics and many experts say will increase the risk of there being blackouts or other kinds of electricity rationing during the winter so it's if you take the price mechanism out of it and you can understand why they're doing this because the amounts we're talking about would be massively disruptive for people very very hard for people to to afford and put some people into effectively into destitution so absolutely understandable why they're doing it but it creates problems at the other end because in the end it's going to be hard to keep the lights on for everyone the whole time or for factories to keep operating and for them to have sufficient energy to keep doing that so you know it's it's not without its problems
0: Last week, we spoke quite a bit about the government's plans to introduce language tests for citizenship and residency permits. And one of the things we touched on is that the process of introducing language tests for citizenship in particular has been very slow. And I know you've followed up on that story this week, Richard. Can you tell us a bit about what you've found out?
3: Yeah, I mean, what happened was is when, after they announced this policy in June, we had a lot of questions. So why are you bringing in tests for permanent residency? And are these superseding the idea of language tests for citizenship? Or is it something in addition? And it was very unclear from what they said in the announcement. So we... we, we sent off emails to lots of people who were involved in the initial inquiry into uh, language tests for citizenship. And, you know, one of the people who got back to us was Sophia Tingsel, who's acting head of the Language Council of Sweden, who was involved in that inquiry back in, I think it was 2019, 2020, And she thought that what had happened was that when they came out with these proposals to set up a whole new set of language tests for citizenship, the university said, who was supposed to carry out the tests said, we're not willing to do this. The Mm. National Agency for Education, who was supposed to produce them, said they didn't have the competence to do that. And um, her own agency said it was clashed with the Sweden's language law and would be counterproductive. So there was this massive pushback from all of the agencies yeah. who would be forced to enact this. And sometimes the government just I mean, it's the same as any reforms especially often in education actually, you know you always get this pushback from the, the vested interests who don't want to change what their policies or their approach. And But this time it seems like the government thought uh, uh, this is going to be too difficult and has basically put it on the back burner because after two years, they still haven't sent the proposal onto the next stage, which is to go to the uh, Swedish Council of Legislation, which then prepares the law and makes sure that it fits with other laws and, you know, that it works as a law. And so I still don't know if it is on the back burner or not. So we need to... It's something I really want to look into in the next few weeks and try and get some kind of answer from the Justice Ministry, I think would be responsible. You know, where where, where are you going on this? Is this actually going to happen? Or is this something that that isn't actually... Actuelt, as they say. Is it just going to die a quiet death? Is it just going to die a quiet death? And you're going to instead test people at at the Mm -hmm. permanent
0: residency stage. Uh, Why was the Language Council of Sweden so opposed to it?
3: Her main argument is that the, 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 her her council it, it surveys a lot of the research on language learning, immigration languages how they work in society. So she argued that a lot of the research and past experience indicates that people aren't failing to learn Swedish because they don't want to. It's it's because it's because there's some obstacle for them to doing it you know they don't have they're illiterate or mm. they're traumatized or they don't have the the right educational background which makes it actually quite difficult to reach this this level of swedish that's proposed and so they fear that it would be become a discriminatory tool that would block people uh, from being able to become Swedish citizens based on things they really have no control over, you know, whether they went to school when they were kids and, and sorts of things like that. And she also pointed out that it's a bit of a strange way to approach a, a problem with languages. Or And she used the example of maths. She said, you know, if, if Sweden is worried that kids don't have good enough maths and that's a block to the Swedish economy in the future. You don't sit there and go, you all have to pass this math test or else. You, you invest yeah. in math teachers. They argued that a much better way of dealing with this problem is to improve the Swedish for immigrants teaching in Sweden and make it more accessible. So a lot of people who've who've come to Sweden, they need to get working as quickly as possible and society wants them to do that, but that clashes with the ability to learn a language. You can't sit in SFE for six years and be working as a, you know, delivery driver or something like that. You can't do both. And and so to make SFE more accessible, I suppose, would be to have more evening classes, to, to, to make it sort of shorter at more convenient times of the day uh maybe do more kind of online ways of doing it more podcasts you know be a bit Mm. more inventive i mean nowadays sfe is very much like someone standing in front of a classroom of 50 people and and it could easily be done in a more innovative way so so she, she says there's a lot of things to be done that don't involve putting this kind of pretty brutal demand on people because you know it's it's not like like passing an exam or getting a university degree if you don't get citizenship you might yeah. be have to move to a different country it might completely change your life it's a pretty high stakes to have the argument she was making is that it, it, it language tests shouldn't become some kind of a symbolic thing that either means you're welcome or not welcome
1: but but what the proponents of language tests would then say is that you know if you look at it from an individual level maybe that's true but if you look at it from a from a societal level um, that it that it helps create what, what they would call parallel societies, where you, you, know, you have one Swedish society where people can make networks across almost the whole of society. And then you have, you have pockets of society where people, because of, because of a, a lack of language ability, are unable to do that. And that creates all sorts of problems with social cohesion.
0: Johan Persson, the leader of the Liberal Party, he clearly thinks that it's key to social cohesion, and he's uh, dropping the age limits considerably. Uh, he's been in the news this week for, for demanding that two-year-olds be able to speak Swedish. Well, what's he actually? What's he actually saying, Richard? Have you have you seen that story?
3: His argument is that children who don't speak any Swedish at home—a big problem for Swedish schools in segregated areas—is that when the, a lot of kids are, are arriving in schools when they are six, seven, eight—is it seven or eight? I don't know—without Speaking decent Swedish, and that's partly because their families don't send them to kindergarten and and förskola. So, uh, um, so his proposal is that the. When they have their normal test with the local primary centre, there's already, as part of that, a kind of language element. They check whether the two-year-old's language development is, is happening as it should or the one-year-old is happening. And, and if they don't have Swedish, then it will become compulsory to go to kindergarten, to send the child to kindergarten. Uh, and, and that's a kind of, again, as so much in the Swedish debate at the moment, that's that's come from Denmark. Denmark has this rule that they have compulsory kindergarten in what do they call the, what used to be called get, ghetto areas, areas and parallel yeah. society areas and to be honest I mean in a way it's it's a good way of ensuring that the next generation speaks Swedish is that they that everyone
0: goes to, to kindergarten What happens if the parents refuse to um, send their two-year-olds to preschool?
3: Well that's one of the things that caused controversy yesterday is that in the uh, press conference he said well if they don't they might have to be taken into care and then in, a, in an aside he goes which is the worst thing that can happen to a child to be taken away from their parents and, and, and so that's caused us Sort of outrage on Twitter that how can you be proposing something which you say yourself is is, is not good for the kids yeah.
0: And we'll be back uh, with our main topic after this short break. Selling a little or a lot. Now, the election countdown is well and truly on. It's less than a month now until voters go to the polls and with immigration-related issues high on the agenda, we decided to take a closer look at what Sweden's parties are saying they'll do in the areas of immigration and integration if they form part of the next government. And we'll focus mostly on the kind of areas that affect most of our listeners, like work visas, residency permits and citizenship. If I could start with you, um, Becky, what what are the Social Democrats saying in this area?
2: I've specifically looked at what's on their website and what they've said in speeches to do with the election. Like, I've not looked at kind of all of the policies they've ever done that could affect immigrants. This is specifically like things that they've said in, in kind of their election information. And I think the Social Democrats are kind of emblematic of the whole Swedish political system when it comes to immigrants. The migration section on their website is migration, asylum and refugee politics. So it's, it's very much seeing every kind of immigrant as the same. There's not, that, there's not that much stuff that kind of covers work permit immigrants or people that have come to live with partners or people that have to, or EU immigrants that kind of, yeah, have, have, it's easier for them to arrive in Sweden anyway. They do say that work permit integration should be tightened up, but they don't really go into detail on how they think that should happen.
1: Work permit um, immigration.
2: Yeah, work permit immigration, so like labour migrants. I mean, they've said in the past that that could be introducing so this was the, you can only get a job if it's in a role where there's a national shortage. So, and they've also spoken about introducing a minimum salary. So it could be that that they're referring to, but they don't specifically say that in their policies.
0: What about the moderate party? Yeah, the
1: moderate party, they do actually talk quite a lot about labour migration. But like a lot of parties in Sweden, when they talk about immigration, they're usually talking about asylum immigration. So they say one of their headlines in their immigration policy is we want to um, introduce a volume target for immigration to Mm. Sweden um, of 5,000 people. Then you look at the small print – it's asylum immigration but they don't, they don't always they're not always absolutely clear about that when they speak. So if you hear this, they're not looking to introduce a volume target for migration full stop. They're looking to introduce a volume target for asylum immigration of 5000 refugees a year. They say they want to protect highly qualified Labour immigration, but they want to tackle what they say is cheating in the system through, for instance, cracking down on people bringing relatives as uh, personal assistants or carers, which they, they 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 see as a problem. They want to raise the minimum wage for labour migrants to twenty seven thousand five hundred and forty krona a month. But on the flip side of this, so and that, in that sense that you know that that's a, that's a relatively high salary. I think the Christian Democrats are proposing a bit more than that. But on the other side of that, they what they've said. Previously, and what I understand still to be their policy, although it's not expressed in their election material, is that they are opposed to this um, abis magnus prövning, i.e. they don't want um, civil servants to be deciding which uh, which jobs need to be filled. They want to leave that up to employers to decide which people they need to bring in, but with a minimum salary of 27540 mm-hmm that is going to mean that um, the number of jobs in practice is going to be the kind of jobs that are that, that filled is going to be um, restricted. They also want, on the integration side, they want language requirements, as we were just talking about, um, language requirements for permanent residency and uh, citizenship. So generally, you know, tightening up on quite a few things... Um, but in that particular area of not having the arbetsmarknadsprövning, not having the labour market test,
0: a big issue for a lot of our listeners, which is a big yeah. issue
1: for a lot of our listeners. In that sense, the moderates will actually be somewhat more liberal, as long as you're paid more than
3: twenty-seven thousand five hundred and forty yeah. kroner a month.
0: Richard, what about the the Sweden Democrats, the third biggest party in the polls?
3: Well, not surprisingly, they're quite negative to immigration, given that that's their sort of raison d'etre more or less as a party. So they they say that mass migration to Sweden from illegal immigrants, economic migrants and asylum seekers has changed Sweden for the worse. So they start straight off saying migration has been bad for Sweden. Mm. So that's their starting point and caused many social problems that we now need to fix. So they want to stop all refugees at all from countries which are not close to us. So I think Ukrainians would be okay. But outside of Europe... It's a a no-no. And they want to tighten migration policy to the strictest possible level under EU law. When it comes to labour migration, unlike the moderates, they do support the return of Arbitz markners Provening, which is what the Social Democrats want to do, which is bringing back the old system where the unions and civil servants sort of work together to decide wh- where there's a need for labour in Sweden. And it's only possible to get work permits if you have one of these jobs or one of these roles. So they do support that. And they want it to be a kind of, if anything, tougher than it was before. Uh, When it comes to integration and citizenship, they want you know obviously all of the things that have been floated they want language tests they want citizenship tests they want you to be able to prove that you've supported yourself for the long period that you've already been in Sweden they want to make it so that immigrants can't get benefits unless they've earned money so they need to you need to earn money and pay into the tax system before you can take anything out and they've got all sorts of rules for deporting people so they want to deport people who commit crimes even if they've got permanent residency but also so if they are antisocial or in some way hurt our society. So, I mean, you know, you could get deported for just about anything. And and if you haven't managed to get a job, if you're unemployed, you could end up being deported. So it's interesting to see how, if the moderates do take power with the, with the backing of the Sweden Democrats, how they will deal with questions like labour market tests. Will they be able to keep that liberal system or will they be forced to... Do something that, like what the Social Democrats are proposing.
0: When we were talking before the pro- the podcast, you had an interesting point about these election pledges and how meaningful they they actually are. And it was something that I think Magdalena Anderson had had touched on.
3: Yeah, I mean, she she was asked in her in her interview with long inter- pre election interview with Swedish yeah. Radio whether the idea of election pledges you know, was uh, outdated. She was hit with a whole load of election pledges they had before last election that they ditched as soon as they did this deal with the Centre Party and the Liberal Party. Yeah. And she said, well, you know, I think people understand that in the current parliamentary situation, no one's going to get a majority. And what you can do is always going to depend on the negotiations you have after the election. So she was asked, you know, do you think that it, 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 rather than election pledges, we should have sort of goals or or, or sort of intentions and she said yeah if i'm honest that's what i think
0: yeah Yeah, so in the example of the social democrats if if they form a government it will be with the support of the left party the center party and and the green party and the left and the center are as far apart from each other on fiscal policy as it's possible to be in swedish politics so there's serious horse trading that will need to be done
3: And on this issue, uh, on things like the labour market tests, I mean, Centre Party is very,
0: very opposed to that. Yeah, if we move on now to to Centre Party, um, Becky, uh, you've you've had a look at their policies.
2: Yeah, so um, the Centre Party kind of, I guess their big argument for why you should vote for them is if you're right wing, so if you're borderline. Um, but you don't like the Sweden Democrats. They're kind of the only party in that block who has said that they're not going to work with the Sweden Democrats, which also puts them over in the in the left wing block. But you know, if you're liberal. Um but you don't you you don't like the Sweden Democrats, then that's kind of their argument for voting for them. They accuse the Sweden Democrats of being a xenophobic party with authoritarian leaders as its role models. Um, so they're really, a lot of the, Annie Love's um, summer speech, so they, all of the party leaders have this kind of summer speech before the, everything kind of kicks off. A lot of her speech was talking about that the center party believes that everyone is equal. She says that Sweden is a mosaic of people with different backgrounds, lives and dreams. And then she kind of links that to a mosaic of people that want things to work. And then she goes into kind of this is our thoughts on healthcare queues and this and this and this. But she's kind of very she doesn't really say anything specifically immigrant policies in her speech or in the highlighted on the website. But she definitely makes a point of saying, like, we're not anti-immigrant. We're not working with the Sweden Democrats. We're not on their side, um, which kind of implicitly is saying that we're pro-immigrant.
0: And where does her party stand on work permits?
2: The centre want everything to be how it is now. They've said that right. kind of the the work permit law that we have at the moment is what they want to protect. That's, what they, mm. that's how they think it should be. So they don't want to have Arbeitsmarknadsprövning or this kind of lower salary cap or anything. They want everything to stay the same.
0: So this is a law that was brought in by the four-party alliance government, of which the, the centre party was one member.
1: And, and they did this together with uh, the Green Party, True. So, yeah. they, so, so it was those five parties at that point stood um, behind the Labour Migration Act.
0: Yeah, and the, several of those are now... moving in a more restrictive direction. Very much so. Okay, and and how about the left party?
1: Well, the left party... One of their major concerns with uh, labour migration is that it allows people to get exploited. That people come here for low-paid work and are then exploited um, by unscrupulous employers in Sweden. So they want to crack down on that. They are in favour of this arbetsmarknadsprövning, this labour market test. They also want to make it possible for people who report their employers for a bad work environment to be able to do so without fear of being deported.
0: Great. And what about the um, the Christian Democrats, Richard?
3: Well, when it comes to work permits, they have the highest salary threshold. They want you to have to have a salary of 35,000 kroner in order to be able to get a work permit to come to Sweden, which is which limits it to pretty high-end labour migration. So that's, you know, executives and computer programmers and scientists and things like that. Migration isn't really the focus of their campaign. The focus of their campaign is very much on, on healthcare and crime, but they want to go, they, they want to take power with the backing of the Sweden Democrats and they are, you know, okay with sort of, quite tough policies on, on migration. They're, they're quite liberal, strangely, because they're a party that's all about the family. They tend to be quite liberal when it comes to migration on things like um, family reunification. So they they're not opposed to people who come to Sweden being able to bring their families with them. Because they're a party that's all about the family. I, th- I think what's so interesting about this is it is is the, the likely alliances, the likely
1: coalitions, make it if the, if this is one of your issues, and this, this is the same for so many issues in this election, if, if labour migration is your issue and you're and you're interested in this and you have a vote and you want it to be more liberal, for example, or you want it to stay as it is, it's really hard to know who to vote for because. The fact is, you know, if you want if you want a liberal labour migration policy, you could vote for centre Partiers. But on the other hand, they'll probably support a government led by the social democrats and also supported by the left party, both of which are in favour of Abis Magnus Um On the other hand, um, you could vote for the moderates, um, who are in favour who are against Abis Magnus Prövning but are um uh, but but for this higher salary limit but if that's okay by you you could vote for them but on the other hand they are also going to need the support of the Sweden Democrats who want the Magnus preventing so you've 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 kind of got to do do a little analysis and think, and try and figure out who might win that battle after the election and what the, what the actual result might be and I don't know I've been following Swedish politics for 20 years and I've no idea
0: There are a couple of parties we haven't um, looked at yet one of which is very active on integration that's uh, the Liberals, uh, Becky
2: Yeah, so for the Liberals, integration is a key policy on their website. They're kind of focusing on migrants that are refugees, saying that it's all about new Swedes ending up in or suburbs, like old million program areas. So yeah, although they speak a lot about integration and migration, it's not really stuff that's going to affect people that are here on a work permit or people that are here on like a a Sambo visa, like a visa because you've, you've moved to be with someone in Sweden. It's more going to affect the refugees that arrive. Yeah, it's more going to re- affect refugees and people that are seeking asylum in
0: Sweden. It'd be interesting to see how they do if the two year old children of immigrants could vote. <laughs>
2: I would not give Maya a vote. She <laughs> couldn't even decide what trousers to wear today. It took <laughs> her 20 minutes. I got every single pair of trousers out and she's like, "Nay, nay, you have a lintel bookshop. It's like, OK, go to Douglas with no trousers on. I don't care. She should not have the vote.
1: If indecisiveness about what you're going to wear is disqualifying you for a vote, then I'm getting worried, actually. I have those
0: mornings most mornings. OK, so if we, if we go back to our, to our parties here, we just have the Greens left.
2: Yeah, so um, the Greens on the topic of work migration, work permit migration... They've said that they're not entirely against raising the 13,000 kroner salary threshold, but they want people that are here on a work permit to still be able to work part-time if they're studying or something. And they're against Arabidsmarknadspravening, so they're against the labour market tests.
0: Yeah. So as, as James mentioned earlier, they were one of the parties that enacted this more liberal law back in 2008. Yeah. Um, so they're still broadly, broadly in favour of um, maintaining that.
1: Yeah and they are against abis magnus provening which puts them with the center party on that on that side of politics but um but then you have the social democrats and vensterpartiet
3: who are in favor of it and so we'll see see how the cards fall i mean it was interesting um when when i interviewed the center party's vice deputy leader martin audal because the way he described what had happened in this mandate period is that the center party single-handedly blocked bringing back a lot of the things we're talking about now. Like the Social Democrats wanted to bring back, oh, but it's four years ago in the in the last migration law, but it was shot down and uh, wanted to bring back. And, and I don't know where the Milderats stood in that discussion, but he, obviously, because he's from the Centre Party, <laughs> argued it was the Centre Party that blocked it. So I think when James is talking about what will happen after the election, I imagine the Centre Party will put up quite a tough fight against bringing back labour market testing and a high salary threshold.
2: Yeah, and I think you also have to think that just because a party is in one block, that doesn't necessarily mean that the centre party is going to always vote with, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that parties are kind of tied to always voting with that block. If it's kind of policy issues, if it's not like big major laws, they can still cross cross the block lines. They can still, like the centre party... Unless they're in the party, government. Unless they're in government.
1: Unless they're in government.
2: yeah, And you don't know if they're going to be in government. Yeah.
1: No, we don't. But there is a lot of talk um, now. There's a lot of speculation that the centre party is quite keen to go into government um, with the Social Democrats after the next election. So they would actually sit in a coalition government with and Annie Lerf would be a minister in that government and that would make it much harder for them to vote against the government or make it almost impossible for them to vote against the government without, without bringing the government down. So, so you know, uh, that's another factor perhaps to bring, in, to bring into this.
0: Yeah. But yeah, it will, t- it will test the Social Democrats' resolve on these work permit issues. It certainly will.
1: Yeah, but it will also test the centre party's resolve. They, they, might, they might decide that they can win other things from the other concessions from the Social Democrats on things like tax because the, the centre party are much, much more in favour of lower tax rates than, than, say, the Social Democrats and the Venster party, and Venster party at the left party, um, who tend to favour higher tax rates. So, you know, they, they might concede more on, on those sort of um, fiscal issues and immigration issues or on something else. So it's, it's, it's not easy to see how it'll, how it'll pan out.
0: That's all for this week. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. And thank you to our regular panelists, Becky Waterton, James Savage, and Richard Orange, and our sound engineer, Reese Edwards. We'll be back again next Saturday.
3: Hey, it's
1: Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
0: with a new episode. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by the local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.